Hello, and welcome to How Have You Not Seen That? My name is Wilson. I'm Charles. And I'm Crossman. This is a podcast about movies, where we discuss films that we have lied about seeing in the past, and we come clean. If you've ever been at a social engagement, a party, out with friends, somebody mentions a movie, ask us if you've seen it, and you be a little coy, you be a little lying, you tell them that you have when you really haven't, now's your opportunity, or our opportunity anyway, to watch those movies and then talk about them. This week we watched the 1995 film 12 Monkeys, starring Bruce Willis, directed by Terry Gilliam. This was Charles' selection. Charles, Charles tell us about 12 Monkeys. Okay, so in this movie, um, we're in the future where the vast majority of the human population has been wiped out by a virus, and the remaining people live underground. Uh, and Bruce Willis is the main character. He gets chosen um, by the scientists of the society to be sent back in time to try to find a cure for this virus. Uh, and I believe they determined that they can't actually change the past, but they can find a cure for the virus to affect their future. Uh, so he gets sent back to 1990, which is about six years before the, the virus happens. He spends some time there. He gets stuck in a mental institution where he talks with a Brad Pitt character. Um, and he kind of goes back and forth between the quote-unquote present of the future and the 1990s um, <clears throat> trying to investigate the situation. Um, and eventually it, you discover that he has implanted the idea of the virus into the Brad Pitt character, which eventually leads to the plague, even though Brad Pitt's character is not the one who um, executes it. A different character in that organization ends up doing it. Um, but he implants that idea there, which is kind of wacky, and he um, discovers how the plague is going to be released and tries to stop it. Um, but in doing so, he fulfills his childhood memory because when he was a child, he has his memory of being at the airport and seeing a guy get shot. And it turns out that the whole time that was him from the future being shot while he was trying to prevent the virus from being spread. Yeah. There's a lot going on in this movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so that was a, a good summary of a movie that's kind of <laughs> all over the place. Um, have you seen this one before, Drew Aspen? Mm -hmm. When did you first see 12 Monkeys? Sometime in college. Yeah, me too. And it was just kind of like out there. Like everyone seemed to have like seen it. Yeah. And so it was on like TNT or something. Like watched mm -hmm. it. <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, we watched uh, Legit, the um, French short film that this is very loosely based on. Um, in some film class that I took, and then I went and tracked down 12 Monkeys after that. I think this is, like, the most, like, mainstream of Gilliam's films, too. It's only the most popular. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... So they, it's they, more popular than Brazil? Because I feel like I've heard of Brazil more than I've heard of 12 really? Monkeys. Really? I think Brazil's, like, maybe more influential, but I, <laughs> okay. I think as, like, films that people have actually sat down and watched, I think this is actually, like, a pretty normy like, sci-fi film in that regard or yeah like a well, lot I mean, of people have just like seen it yeah there, there's there was eventually a sci-fi series but like sci-fi channel series based on this movie again pretty loosely and this one like has star power like bruce willis is in it brad pitt is in it yeah and like that isn't really the case like de niro has a small role in brazil um but it doesn't like quite have the the punch that that sure. this one does this is probably gilliam's most popular movie okay most, I, I think i don't know but i think yeah that's, I, that's I think that's correct yeah how'd you like it I'd, well, I'd, uh, sorry, other than uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. No, oh, okay, fine. Okay. Yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, how would you like it, Charles? I enjoy this movie quite a bit. I mean, as you can probably tell by now, I really like sci-fi films. Yep. I love time travel stories, and I thought this was a great take on that kind Here of story. Uh, a very depressing one, since you know he seems to have no ability to change, you know, Anything. the past. It's all set. 
already, right? And that's kind of a depressing take on time travel since it's always about the hope of undoing your past mistakes and all that. Mm -hmm. That's usually why we do time travel stories, right? It's hopeful things, you know, changing past mistakes or seeing what's possible in the future. And here it's just, it's all set. It's all what already happened. It, and that's it, kind of depressing. In that sense, it does seem like the most like quote unquote like realistic time travel movie where yeah. like if there are time travelers, then they're just like around us. Yeah. And that's that seems to be kind of like the take on time travel of this movie. Right. They're I mean, just like they're they they're already here if, if there are time travelers. Yeah. It's it's just funny because you always hit into the the origination paradox because he like creates the idea of the virus and all that. Right? Yeah, like Terminator has the same thing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And uh, you know, a lot of movies don't address that, or you address it by having the split off parallel universe thing, which I think pretty cleanly deals with that so paradox. That's what comic books do. Right. Yeah. Um, but here, it's just they leave it in there, and I think that's kind of wild. Yeah, and, and, and I to me, I think like the level one reading of like this style of time travel narrative is that it's a pretty conservative idea, right? Like the, the idea that like the past is set in stone, the idea that like what you're doing is what you're supposed to be doing, attempting to deviate from that is futile, right? Like it's this notion that like attempting radical change is, is at, at best useless and in other texts, not this one, affirmatively harmful, right? Like that, that you will go back in time and you have like a Ray Bradbury situation where you step on the, you step on the butterfly and all of a sudden the entire world is going to end, right? And like, so you have this, this very conservative idea that I, I think can be read into this film as opposed to something like Back to the Future where you can go back into the time, it, go back in time, affirmatively change things, and it makes the world better. And yeah. <laughs> that's that's an effective technique. And like that's that's kind of, I, in my view, like a more progressive idea of like how the world functions. Really, that that like the actions that we take can and do and indeed do have a potentially positive and dramatic effect on how reality and events play out. Mm. Okay. I, I I think it's. In line with Gilliam's ideology, though, because yes. he, he does seem to be overtly focused in all of his films on draconian systems. And this is like even Monty Python addresses that through like feudalism. This is through just the notion of time. Um, Brazil, uh, obvious Obviously. references to 1984. And what they all evoke is this feeling of like helplessness where like yeah. you you just can't do things because things are either so mad or so out of your control around you that like right what, what is it to do, one can do um which would you explain much more succinctly but but what what i think is um sort of like comforting about this viewpoint is that like living in society often feels this way where like the sort of like madness of things happening around you is, uh, you know, difficult to interact with. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, which is true. And I think yeah, yeah. He, he evokes that difficulty a lot in a lot of his films. Yeah, but into it, frustrating ends, right? Yes, especially yeah. Brazil. Um, but this one, I think I read. I mean, there's a reason I refer to that as like a level one reading because I think that there is a next step that you can take in reading this film that is in fact more hopeful and like not mm -hmm. as as retrograde. Yeah, and because. What I think I think this movie is less about time travel and more about like understanding history mm -hmm. and studying history, right? Because really, that that's the role that Bruce Willis is taking in this film. It's like a historian, right? He's that's true. he's like going back yeah. in time and trying to learn about like why these things happened, 
what can we learn from it knowing why, why, they, why they happened, how is our current understanding of why they happened incorrect, and how can correcting that make things better in the future. Yeah. And I think that, that it, you see that happen at the end of the movie, right? Like where he makes that phone call and says, actually the thing that we've been, the assumption we've been operating under about the 12 monkeys army you know, causing the disease is incorrect. We need to radically yeah. alter I mean, our so understanding here. When I say that their notion of time travel in this is depressing because you can't you know, change the past, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I mean, that that's partially true, but they are aiming to forge a better future exactly. for humanity still. They're still trying to... You know, use what happened to to change the course going forward. And you see it in the closing sequence, right? Because yeah. the the, um, the David Morris character, who's the actual madman that created the the disease, sits down next to one of the leaders of this the the future twenty thirties world, and the implication there is pretty clear that she's going to try to snatch one of the vials that he has and use that to study something or other back in the the present, the film's present. Mm-hmm. Here they are learning, right? Like they've correctly identified who's actually at fault now. And they're using that information to make the world better in the future. And to me, that, that's, a, that's a hopeful message. And it uh, almost an instructive didactic message, right? Like here is, this is how we should be understanding the past. This is how we should be using our knowledge of what happened before. Yeah, or it's like, don't be resigned to the fact that the past is immutable because yep. you can still affect the future. Right, exactly. And you can affect it by, through understanding, through learning, through studying. Um, and I, I like that message about it. And I think that yeah. that might be closer to what, what Gilliam, uh, among many, many other things, <laughs> what Gilliam is getting at here, right? Because even if, it, like, he kind of draws a point to it, because, like, even if he had been, like, if Bruce Willis had been successful, hadn't gotten shot, had tracked down the guy as he's running through the, the terminal after him, the guy had already opened up the vial. Yeah. Like, when he was passing through security. It was already futile. Like, the yeah. disease was out there by the time that... that He's within eye, eye shot of of Bruce Willis. Yeah. Right. So, to me, this is this is a, a more optimistic movie than Brazil, um, and and really kind of a more almost more useful movie than Brazil, mm-hmm. in, in terms of like instructive for for folks at large. Um, so I like that about it, uh, and I thought that it, that that worked here. I think it's rare that films um, interact with World War One. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was a good choice on Gilliam's part. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, in line with his, like, sort of the madness of the world ideology, because World War One is, like, the most what, pointless, most pointless, stupidest event in human history, like, up there yes. with yeah, well, the dumbest possible thing that could have happened. Yeah, right down to, like, again, how it began, right? Because you want to mm-hmm. talk about, like, stupid beginnings. Like the series of like mistakes that have to occur on the the day of Franz Ferdinand's execution for that to actually it's happen. It's like that like tiny domino, it's a huge <laughs> domino meme, right? Yeah, it is like that. But like they they have to. Have you ever heard the story? Like I'm not gonna remember all the details about like the actual assassination of Franz Ferdinand. Yeah. About like he he was supposed to be going on this parade and like there was this group of you know assassins that were ready to kill him and they're all like kids basically and. Like, so they have a plan to, like, get him at a certain point, but then, like, his route to the parade ends up taking a wrong turn, so he goes in the wrong direction, and the kids, like, don't end up where they're supposed to at the right time anyway, so even if he had been there when he was supposed to, they would have missed him. But then, like, one of them gets lost and happens to get lost at the point 
where he took the wrong turn. So he's just like, there's this guy, and he has a gun, and he's like, the guy that he's been looking for and thought that he missed, like, shows up in front of him, and he just fucking shoots him, and that starts <laughs> World War One. It's like, oh, okay, that's, that is the dumb bullshit that history turns on, yeah. right? Like, that, that's the kind of, you know, nonsense that we're, we're, we're dealing with here. And so, of course, he's evoking that, right? Like, of course, he's going back to World War One um, for, you know, five minutes. Yeah, well, right. I mean, they also mention, like, the horrific chemical warfare Right, right. Which again it parallels the yeah. disease narrative, um, which is another one of the changes from Legit because Legit they just talk about uh, World War Three happens and it like yeah. blows up Paris, um, and in this movie it's a disease, mm-hmm. uh, uh, which is. Uh, it, I, I like though that that's the evidence that she finally finds that like it convinces her that Bruce Willis is not. Oh, that was such a, a funny moment. Person. Yeah. Yes. When she discovers that the bullet's old, and then she's like, no, 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 no. And she looks at the photo, and Bruce Willis's is. head is... Oh, that, I, I couldn't help but crack up. Yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, now she's, now she's convinced. Yeah. Um, yeah, her character arc is fucking bizarre. Like, <laughs> And the treatment of that character, which I... So he, there's a, psychologi- a psychologist that treats Bruce Willis when he first shows up in 1990 at this mental institution because he's deranged from having traveled through... And also she's a psychiatrist, psychiatrist, which I learned is actually different from a psychologist. Yeah, one of them I learned from watching this movie. Oh, really? Yeah, one can prescribe. I didn't realize. Yeah, yeah, one of them went to medical school and the other one didn't. Yeah, so she she has the MD. She has the MD. Um, So, yeah, so she can prescribe uh, psychotic uh, medications. Um, But so this is the the Madeline, is her first name? Marilyn? Something Mm -hmm. like that. Uh, Yeah, Madeline Stowe character who eventually kind of does a Harley Quinn kind of and is treating Bruce Willis at the mental institution and eventually comes to realize that his crazy talk is his truth and they team up to run away to Key West, uh, I guess. Um, but her character arc is wild, absolutely wild. How do you feel about her? And she's supposed to be kind of the audience surrogate, right? Where yeah. She's like, you know, the grounded, sane person. Right. The one that, you know, is asking questions about, what are you doing, you crazy man? I mean, I I thought it made sense. And, like, when she actually finds the evidence of it, like, yeah. one might be convinced. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's all plausible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like she, seemed, she seems properly qualified and turns over at the right moment. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah I, I like that. I, I think she's a good, like, surrogate for the audience and, and sympathetic. Yeah. yeah. She's, yeah, she's certainly sympathetic, but yeah. I feel like the... Uh, sexual politics of this movie, especially oh, in, the, yeah, yeah, in the first yeah, yeah. half. That's bad. Are bad. Are very bad. I'm so weird that a, a Monty Pythoner would have right, bad yeah. politics. <laughs> have some, especially towards women. Imagine that. Yeah. Yeah. What a that, stunner. That's very shocking. What a stunner. Because you, I mean, there's like a rape threat at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, she's damseled at, at multiple moments. Um, like her entire function appears to be to be captured by Bruce Willis for the first half of the movie. And then they make the weird decision to like swap their roles later on, where like she's dragging him around from location to location. And I think that they're trying to make some commentary about like, oh, what happens when we flip yeah, the gender yeah, roles? Yeah, she becomes like more convinced than he is. Than he is, right. Like, he they starts flip, to think yeah. that he's personally lost it, but right. in reality... He starts to believe what she had told him earlier in the right. movie. Yeah, right. they, they swap roles. I, I like yeah. that. Yeah, I, I thought I, that was good. Right, I think that that works narratively. Yeah, but on the level of like the politics of that sequence, it's oh, like, no, that's bad. Right, it's it, <laughs> it it feels like a very juvenile attempt to like critique 
Don't they end up at like a, a prostitution house too, or something? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, that's an hourly, um, an hourly hotel. Right. Right. And, yeah. Which is you know just yeah for, for prostitution. That's why yeah. those exist. Um, yeah, that that was good. Although they they also um, end up on where the Twelve Monkeys headquarters is is. Mm-hmm. Was uh, next to an apartment building that I lived at. Really, I remember, it's very recognizable in a place in in Bushwick. It's right next to the Merle Broadway J. Oh, and um, there's this weird, like, kind of triangular building on the corner that, when I was living there, was like a uh, like a um, an all ages club <laughs> that would have like crappy bands, and wow. there would always be like teens outside smoking. And I'd have to walk past through this crowd to like get to my apartment. You old man. Every every Thursday night. <laughs> yeah. Um, Eighteen plus show. <laughs> but how, yeah, but that whole area, that whole sequence is just in in bedside. I did not know that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess I just assumed it was either L.A. or Philly, because Philly is where it takes place. Yeah. But um. Okay. Oh, well, there we go. Now, now we know. Yeah. I wonder if they actually filmed in inside. Because like I never saw the inside of that. You're not cool enough. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. Like I couldn't afford the cover. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, like $3. Yeah. <laughs> and a um, note from your mom. And, yeah, exactly. Um, I, think, I think while I was there, that place got shut down. I think it was because they were serving to, to under under 21. Well, that'll do it. Um, That's why they give them the big yeah. X's. Because suddenly shows stopped happening there. Yeah. And it was like, oh. Figured it out. Yeah. Um. But yeah, I did. I did not. I did not realize that. Um, but that is where we see a lot of Brad Pitt. Is that he? He yeah. has teamed up with those guys, and this is like Brad Pitt as his mm-hmm. biggest and most spastic um, in in this movie. Yeah, young Brad Pitt. Yeah, for, uh, he, it must have been. Oh, I mean, this is pre Fight Club. Yeah, Fight Club was ninety nine, um, and this was uh, this was ninety five. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah, after was he disease. was he popular by this point? Already? Yeah, he was like a teen. So actor, I wasn't sure I if think. like Fight Club was when he like rocked it off, but I think Seven was close to this. I haven't seen that movie, but I think it was close in. Have like, seen Seven? Time? No, I haven't. Oh, okay. Yeah, Seven would have been after this, I believe. I do not like Seven. <laughs> yeah, I don't need. I don't need <laughs> yeah, to watch it. I'm, I'm totally good on not watching that one. <laughs> um, yeah, Seven was right before this, really? which is actually kind of surprising. It feels later. Um, no, his big breakout, I think, is Interview with the Vampire, which is oh, the, yeah. the year before. Yeah, and Legend of the Fall was right around this time, too, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah same year as, as Interview. Um, no, that was after. Really? Okay. Yeah. No, but he was in... Uh, I'm trying to find it. Cool World. <laughs> in what? Yeah, he's in Cool World. <laughs> I don't uh, know what that is. Um, it's, a, it's a Who Frame Roger Rabbit-like movie oh. where it's like live action and animation. Oh shit, that. Oh, I do, I do uh, know what you're talking about. I can imagine the cover. A notoriously bad NES game based on it. Okay. Um, yeah. So, yeah, no, he'd he been acting since the 80s, but okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, what do we think of him in this movie? How does, how does Pitt land? Uh, he's, very, he's very out there and I'm not sure how I feel about his depiction of like a like mentally ill person like i don't know is this is this inappropriate like the whole like like institution sequence like is is this crossing a line i i don't know i i I mean i I have no authority to yeah so i i I felt like i'm like this is this might be this might be reaching a line here i I don't know for sure but it felt like it i i think it's bad but (laughs) um 
one thing that these movies and and this is like been going on for a long time in movies is that like institutions were always shown as like these like horrible places which historically they do have like a troubled history um what's come to replace them though is just like the streets or homelessness so i think as a society we like haven't figured this out right now you you have to be very wealthy to have mental health treatment yeah yeah that that's what it's been replaced with yeah Yeah. so yeah i don't know i'm always like challenged by that because i'm like like neither at least there's like a place (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i mean but but yeah it's also shown to be like a horror show so i I don't know right and and, like these the the patients in this movie are shown to be victims Right, it's it's not like we're looking at people that are bringing this upon themselves. Like they're shown to be victims of a system that's. Yeah. And Bruce Willis is also sane, right? Quote unquote sane. Right. Or, yeah. In yeah. a technical <laughs> sense. Um, yeah. So, like we, again, I think it fits into to Gilliam's aesthetic and his politic that it's again critiquing this institution that you know doesn't treat the people within the institution as people, treats them as you know problems or things to be overcome or ignores them. Um, so it, that fits in with, with his larger critique. Um, but it does recall things like, you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Snake Pit, stuff like that. And maybe we should have been moving on from that depiction of, of, of mental institutions um, by 1995. Uh, it, it all goes back to, like, uh, sort of the House on Haunted Hill style. I've not seen that. Well, it's it's... There's a haunted house, and it it used to be an insane asylum. And like all the um, people who are inside, you like burn to death in this like major accident. Got it. And their spirits still (laughs) haunt us, and they're particularly gratuitous because they were insane. Oh, okay. So yeah, Yeah. their insanity implies some sort of moral condition. Yes. That okay. So but but that's like the foundation of like all of like how institutions are depicted on film typically. but uh-huh. this feels closer to something like Cuckoo's Nest, right? Where you have the people keeping them there are framed as the villains. Mm-hmm. The institution is a, something to be escaped, right? Like you, when you when you get out of it, you have achieved some sort of victory over that that institution. Mm-hmm. The people that are facilitating that escape within the institution are the heroes, right? Like th- that kind of stuff seems much closer to to Cuckoo's Nest and, and again Snake Pit, which is much older, obviously, um, and that. I, it's obviously better than what you're describing here as on, on House on Haunted Hill. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's that's not what we should be pursuing. This sounds very Terminator Two esque. How so? Now that you mention it, well, it's the same sort of dynamic. Oh, like with the Linda like Hamilton. The, yeah. yeah, yeah, yes, I agree. That okay, another time travel movie, right? Right. I mean, it, I guess this came after that, so it might even be a reference at this point, where like you know he comes back in time to try to to save humanity from this horrible calamity, right? But then everybody just thinks he's crazy and locks him up, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is a trope. But what I, what I thought of this viewing is yeah. like, what if there were the movie where the, that we, we have the intro sequence where it looks like the reality is this guy's being sent back in time to achieve some mission. He gets institutionalized. And what if he's just crazy? What if that's what the, what if that's what the movie is? Mm-hmm. It turns out that he, he was wrong. And I was like, I remember watching this the first time and wondering if that's where it was going. Like, are we they're going to reveal that they really were just hallucinations, right? And like, what is the effective way to tell that story if you even want to tell that? Isn't story? that the Kevin Spacey movie, um, K-Pax? 
I saw K-Pax, and no, it one. works out that he really is an alien, I think. Okay. Yeah, but even there, it's like, there's questions of, like, right. sanity around. Whether... Right, but then the answer is, yeah, he was an alien the whole time. And uh, I don't yeah. think I ever watched the end of K-Pax. I, I'm pretty sure, <laughs> I, I watched it a while ago, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened in, okay. in that movie. Um, so, that would be an interesting rewatch. <laughs> K-Pax? Yeah, I do, I do not want to watch fucking K-Pax. Did, I, didn't that get some, like, awards talk when it came out? I have no idea, probably. I mean, for, like, his performances. I mean, K-Pax. Kevin Spacey and Obscenery sounds right to me. Like that, it, it sounds yeah. like that could probably get some awards done. <laughs> um, what I was reminded of in the Brad Pitt performance here was his performance in um, Snatch, right? Where it's just like this really kind of spastic thing. You can't always understand what he's saying. He's a little bit all over the place. Very much in like the very physical, right? Like in the body of the character a lot. Um, and it's cool to like kind of trace the lineage of, lineage of that, which is kind of this iconic Brad Pitt performance back to. To this movie, where he's jumping on beds and throwing shit all over the place, I like that he's toned over his career. He's toned down a lot, though, where he's like taking the essence of this. Oh, yeah. and like does it pulls it out in much better ways. Yeah, because like, um, I mean, th- learn this, to be more subtle. Yeah, the the coin character here feels cartoonish yeah. some mm-hmm. of the time. Right? Oh, yeah. like he's just so big and like so yeah. far beyond um, how people actually behave, and to an extent, it's appropriate for the film. But his role in like Burn After Reading like has elements of this, but it's like mm-hmm. oh, it's just the like the one little detail that like gets us there. Right, we, we don't need the like jumping on the on the bed. Yeah, we just need like silly dancing. Yeah, <laughs> and that's enough. Right? Yeah, like that. That's fine. Nice to distill it a bit. Right. You haven't, haven't seen Burn seen After either. Reading. I haven't seen that or Snatch. Dude, it's, Burn After Reading is awesome. It's like, so it's so funny. It's, it's I've heard so a lot about funny. it. It's, yeah. yeah, that 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 is a great movie and a great pit performance. Yeah, uh, another good uh, little J.K. Simmons performance. And it's so prescient, like 100% describes like the moment that we are in like right now. Yes. <laughs> it's yeah. it's about spycraft and and the Russians and like uh, all this stupid conspiracy theories. It's perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it'll go nowhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, again, very uh, much a combo, this movie. Yeah. Um, so I like that a lot. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to point out here is to co- contrast... This movie with the Danny Boyle movies that we've watched, um, which would be uh, Sunshine and um, the zombie one. Why am I out of that? Days. 20 Days. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and the use of Dutch angles. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this movie uses, also very enthusiastically uses those Dutch angles. Dutch in, angles in, uh, in fisheye lenses. Just and fisheye lenses. Constant. I mean, it seems yeah. like a very Gilliam thing, right? Because it, yes. it, it, I felt the same way about Brazil. I don't remember explicitly if they had that many Dutch angles in that one. But they I, use fisheyes a lot. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it feels like there's more here. And like they're very extreme. Like there are ones where the floor is almost parallel with like the right or left side of the, of the frame. Like that, it's that off center. But it's effective here. Like here, I think it works as opposed to when Danny Boyle does it. I think it oh, is yeah. applied much more. Well, it shows this, like the character's like inner state, right? Right, because yeah. you you see it used in the 2030s, like when he's the prisoner and he's being selected for this baffling mission to do who knows what. You see it in the mental institution, right? Because it, it it literally makes it suggests instability, right? Like the yeah, the absolutely. place is unstable, the character is unstable, whatever being depicted is not grounded. But then when you're seeing like the psychologist character on her own, it's just a normal type of yep. shot, right? Yep. Like when you see Bruce Wells like start to figure shit out a little bit more, like the camera, the camera yep. cools off, right? Like it's it, very it, clearly start, deliberately done. Right, and deli- deliberation is exactly the point, right? Like that when Gillian, because he's a thoughtful filmmaker, <laughs> does this stuff, it's towards some end, 
right? Like it's yeah. supposed to elicit a certain response from the audience, even if the audience isn't sitting there thinking like, oh, here's a canted angle. I'm supposed to understand that this is uh, representing instability of the emotional state of this character here. Yeah. They just feel it because that's what that, that technique, that's the yeah. feeling it elicits. And when it, it, it evens out, the audience is thinking, oh, so these people are sane and stable and what's being depicted here is what's actually going on and I should trust this shot. They just trust it because that's what a movie looks like. And yeah. you're supposed to trust movies. Um, and I think that comparing and contrasting, especially this movie, but Brazil as well, with some of the Danny Boyle movies we've seen, goes to show that there isn't really bad film techniques, right? Like, okay, candid angles aren't bad. Any technique is bad when misapplied. Yeah. And I think that that is the, the lesson to be learned here, is that you can have candid angles, you can have a lot of Dutch angles and have it still work, if you, if they match what you're trying to communicate with your film, yeah, and and Danny Boyle doesn't do that, Gilliam does, um, and I, I I think that that is worth worth calling attention to. Yeah, I mean it, it's so effectively done that just having seen Brazil in this movie mm-hmm. uh, once each just left a very strong impression with me, like the the style of Gilliam's films. Definitely. Um, it's definitely lingered with me that it, I mean, like you, you described, like the off-kilteredness of it, obviously, but it's just this kind of like frantic disorientation that right. you see a lot in these movies, and, and it's it's buttressed by his staging as well because he has like these these frames that are just jam-packed full of stuff, right? Like yeah. his, as when when we're in the twenty thirties and the present in this film, like it's all tubing, so. there's, yeah, these these tubing, these like plastic sheets all over the place. There's weird screens that show weird things. Like, yeah, that like robot that like puts all the screens right in your face. Right. And he puts it right in front of the camera so that you're basically Bruce Willis like with mm-hmm. this thing facing you and you can't escape it. Right, exactly. And like that makes some, it makes sense to shoot that kind of uh, scene and that kind of setting the way that he does, right? And it makes sense to cool off once we have, once we are in a world that we recognize as, as reality more easily. Yeah. recognizes our world more easily. Um, so, I, good work, basically. Yeah. Like, that's what you should be doing. That's how films should be made. Something else that I thought was strange was some of the ways the movie was cut and edited. Sure. So, like, at the beginning, they <clears throat> explained him the time travel mission first, right? But they don't show him going into the time travel machine or anything like that. They just cut to the present time, and then he's already been caught by the police. And you're like, wait a second, what just happened? Like, mm-hmm. did he actually go back in time or something like that, right? And it right. keeps you, like, unsure of what's going on. And that that really helps that feeling, right? And I think the movie's also playing with, like, the unreliability of memory. And it plays with your memory as well. Because you're suddenly not sure if you remember seeing him being sent back in time or something like that. And you're like, what what's going on, right? Right. And then a- as he learns more about what his mission is and as he becomes more accustomed to trying to travel... Then we see him actually enter the machine yeah. like halfway through the movie or more. Yeah. Like we see it actually happen then. Um, and, and again, it's just playing with not just audience information, but audience mood, right? And audience emotions. And that that's just effective filmmaking. That's just that's good filmmaking. Um, so we, we mentioned it earlier. Um, I don't did uh, I linked the sheet. I saw it. You did watch it. Yeah. Did you watch? I did. It's I'm fine. sorry. You don't need to. So the, yeah. the, like, it's it's a pretty significant departure from what goes on here. But I think that that departure between what happens to Paris and the sheet where it's bombed and the the tragedy here it speaks to the different eras that these movies were made because the, the sheet was made in 1962. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And the fear there is clearly the bomb, right? Like the yeah. World War II is still within living memory. Hiroshima, like there were French movies about Hiroshima, Malamore, right? Um, fearing the bomb, worried about the bomb, and now we have this is what causes the, the collapse of the world and forces everybody underground is nuclear warfare. 1995, when this movie was made, I mean, what's the national concern in 1995? End of history. <laughs> AIDS. Yeah. This is about AIDS. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm almost certain that what what Terry Gilliam is calling to mind here. Oh, and they literally the mention for... AIDS as one of the right. big viruses in the movie, which in today's world feels a little silly. Right. But in 1995, like... It was a huge, like, yeah, huge, yeah. huge scare tactic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm sure that's what he's evoking here. Is that the the fear of the time is that here is the plague, right? Here's the next bubonic plague, is is AIDS coming along and slowly killing the the entire planet, um, and I think that that that's the one of the shifts, one of the many shifts between Majit and Twelve Monkeys is interesting, um, and like what our fears are and what what our what our catastrophe in our imagination is um, is is compelling here, yeah. The one other like texture to this movie is like the notion of like conspiracy thinking. Sure. Um, because mm -hmm. we have like there's a lot of elements of like conspiracy here. There's um, <coughs> like small discrete symbols that like have larger meanings. In this case, the like symbol of the 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 monkey army. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then there's sort of like a, a shadowy cabal of scientists or you know controllers that are in the in the future. Yeah. Um, and then someone who's you know, who's seen like all these different times and, and knows and is like connecting all these different disparate facts to what's happening. Um, I'm, I'm not sure that Gilliam has much to say about conspiracy thinking, but it's definitely like thematic to the film. Yeah, I mean, like, like the conspiracy ends up being largely wrong in the end, so that's something. I think that is what he's saying. I think it's yeah. he's saying like. It's incorrect, don't approach history this way. And I think that gets back to really one of the, the central, most coherent themes in this movie is that we need to understand where we came from. We need to understand what was in order to fix what is. And to, to me, that is a very true and important message. And I think that you know most people would agree. Um, but it, it's dramatized well here. As I, I think that Gilliam often gets the knock, and it's fair that he introduces a lot of ideas and doesn't necessarily do a lot with them. Mm -hmm. And that's that's here in this movie too, right? Like what is he really saying about the treatment of the mentally ill in the United States? You know, not that much, right? Like he no. kind of depicts, depicts it and kind of doesn't and then runs away with it. Like what is he saying in terms of the way that like Hollywood treats women and their relationship to to powerful men? You know, maybe not really all but, that But much. that's like very reminiscent of like a Monty Python film. Right. It's just like, you know, a bunch of stuff and everything sticks. You yeah. Know? Like, I, 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 I agree. You know, like the film collapses in on itself many, many times in, in a Monty Python film. And so this, is, this is actually very toned down compared to like well, the, it's, rate, it's, the acceleration which they introduced ideas in Monty Python, Holy Grail. Yeah, like this is like is it more coherent as well. Like the like you can actually draw out statements in yeah, this one. I mean, that's more like a, a sketch movie, basically. It, it has a lot to say, so. though. Like it's a fairly political film, even though it's stupid and nonsense. Yeah, and like over over liked at this point. I think it's been loved to death, actually. Um, I, I I've seen it. I was disappointed by it, considering how often it's referenced. Yeah, exactly. Um, which. Yeah, it happens to cult films, but you know, <laughs> just not my style of humor, I think. Um, but it, the, even in that film, like, there is a political commentary about sort of the stupidity of feudalism. 
but yeah yeah <laughs> yeah but then it's also yeah. like here's some nights and some push jokes and yeah it's a comedy too yeah you know, exactly. there's, there's <laughs> you know just joke scenes but, yeah. yeah and but i think this movie like really does have that that through line but then also a bunch of extra shit and that's yeah that's a, you know a part of the the gilliam experience i think yeah he hasn't done many good things after this. <laughs> yeah, well, he worked on that Don Quixote movie for... Like 25 years. Yeah, right. It's and I, so fitting. Yeah, right. Yeah, this, <laughs> the irony of that. And I think it's actually happening now. Uh, it came out. It's already yeah. it's already out and flopped. Really? Right. Uh, okay. Yeah, Adam Driver was in it, right? Wasn't he? Sure, sure, why not? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm actually happening. Sure. Um, yeah, I was trying to... Let's look at his filmography here. So, yeah, he, he's... yeah, Dante Quixote came out last year. Okay, um, let's go watch it. The Zero <laughs> Theorem with uh, uh, oh, that's right. What's his face? Chris Chris Uppaltz came out before that. Not heard of that. In the Imaginarium of Doctor Parnassus, right. which was the okay. film that like Heath Ledger died while filming. Right, and then they brought in a bunch of extra actors to play his role throughout the film. Yeah, and then he wrote the screenplay for Fear and Loathing. Mm. Sure. So that that was that was fine, and then just like a bunch of like weird cult films yeah okay yeah I mean, that, that sounds about right so pretty spotty career <laughs> i mean because yeah. i mean he's kind of he has butted heads with studios many times right and he's not the oh, most like notoriously yeah not the most budget conscious director ever he's not really all that concerned about making movies that people want to Wait, see is he the guy who like can't enter the u.s or something like that mm. are, you, are you thinking of roman polanski I thought I read that he like was like banished to the UK or something. Oh, maybe because he's like he's the American me. member of Monty Python, right? But I thought I remembered. I think he had renounced his American citizenship. Some like because that. of Bush. Uh, yeah, because of Bush. Yeah, yeah. I think happen. he can still travel here, but okay. he's no longer an American. Okay. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah. But yeah, he's notoriously an asshole. <laughs> but but he also, you know, he was a part of Monty Python, which is like smashed success. Yep. And then, you know, was, there, I think, director of, of uh, Holy Grail, which I'm sure he gets a giant check for every month. <laughs> um, so when you when you have that kind of success at a pretty young age, I think, you know. Touch so. your head. Yeah. Yeah. And you're set for life, right? Like you're gonna that check is gonna keep coming. That's still a very popular film, and there's yeah. a Broadway version of it, and yeah. and like all the TV residuals. So, oh, good for him. Yeah. Uh, any uh, closing thoughts on Twelve Monkeys? One thing I thought was funny was I actually misinterpreted the very ending with the scientist lady. Oh, okay. Um, my initial instinctual reading of it was that that was her from 1990s. Okay. Because I forgot how far future the future scenes were. It was actually her from the 1990s. And because she was actually an insurance and not a scientist, that's why they were so inept in the future. Oh. <laughs> and so this movie was so effective at sowing my like distrust in the ruling people of the future that that was my first read of that scene before I really thought about it after. Because, okay. like, I mean, she's the same age as how she appears in the future. It yeah, can't, it's, it's it can't like actually have been her in the past. 40 year gap or something. Right. right um, but that was my first instinctual read of what was happening there. And I kind of laughed at her saying she was in insurance. Yeah. I mean, it's still a joke, though, right? Because she is in insurance in the sense that she's like, 
ensuring the future of the human race. Yeah, like that's, that's less of you, like a slapstick, like making fun of the bureaucracy yeah. kind of joke. Right, like I interpreted it as as. Yeah, no, that's interesting. That, that's yeah. funny. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's supposed to be like she traveled there. Now, yeah, I, I guess yeah. that she can travel in time now for some reason. But yeah, that's how I read it. Um, Bruce Willis eating the spider. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still like, <laughs> yeah, gross. Yeah, it looks like he actually did it too. You think so? You I gotta have a prop did. spider for that. Yeah, but that was so a there's good. There's no way he's putting a spider. Well, in you can't even with insects on film. Like you can't like kill them. Yeah, and, that's probably true as well. Um, so yeah, and that's like a pretty good sized spider. You can't just uh, topple, uh, that. Uh, <laughs> topple it wait, down. Wait, wait. We can we can Google feel this it. really fast. <laughs> moving around in there. It's like old boy or. He, like he definitely did eat that octopus in Old Boy. He did, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they, yeah, he, they had to do multiple takes. And he's, oh, God. Apparently, he's a vegetarian. Um, oh. So this was like the first he's time. He's a Buddhist. Right, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. Um, and therefore a vegetarian. Um, so he like broke that. He's really committed he, to his job. Really committed to that movie, apparently. Um, yeah, and they had. I think they had to do two takes. Um, so, ooh. Ooh, ooh. That's, um, that's uh, spooky. I can't find. Did he really eat it? No, I think he did. No, in the octopus. Yeah, oh, the spider. Oh, I yeah, I have no idea. I I doubt it. <laughs> no. There's no way, right? Like that's that's way way more than I would be willing to do anyway. Oh uh, yeah, I mean, cut a check for fifty million bucks. Oh, okay, I, I need a spider. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, like a, plus residuals, <laughs> a good size one like that. Was like, that was yeah. Plus residuals, I need a spider. Okay, okay, mm-hmm. good to That's know. Um, any other thoughts? I, uh, I, yeah, I mean, this is like a solid sci-fi movie. Yeah, if, like, uh, like that's hard to do. Right, it, it, it does introduce a lot of ideas. Like, it is, it basically functions on a, on a character level. Like, it's it's full. Like, it's packed. Yeah. Like a lot of Gilliam movies are. Um, but yeah, if you like Brazil, you like this one. It's clever in a way that like a Philip K. Dick story is, mm-hmm. yeah, which I think is like a hallmark of like a good science fiction film. Yeah, that feels yeah. fair. And, and actually, a different, like a very different, unique take on time travel. Mm-hmm. I've never seen it done this way anywhere else. Yeah, yeah, that's that's fair too. And and he has more to say about it than like yes, you can change it. No, you can't change it, right? Like, and I think that that's important, right? Yeah. That it's about learning, um, and that's a kind of a unique message. Yeah. Um, so yeah, thumbs up for for Twelve Monkeys. Yep. Yeah. Um, very watchable. Very watchable. We'll be back in a moment with things we've seen. Stay tuned. Welcome back to things we've seen. Uh, this is a section where we just kind of talk about stuff that we saw recently, usually in theaters. Uh, Charles and I saw Detective Pikachu yep. in the last couple of weeks. What did you think of Detective Pikachu, Charles? I think I was pleasantly surprised by it. I seeing the trailers and stuff, I had no idea what to expect since it's just such a weird idea, right? Like this is one of those things where I just had <coughs> I just could not believe that it was being made at first, right? Okay. Um, but they they sold me on it, right? Like I, I didn't think I could be sold on Pikachu with Ryan Reynolds' voice, but <laughs> like I was just pulled right in, right? I actually that was like the best part of the film. Ryan Perhaps. Yeah. yeah. He's very funny. Absolutely. And it's funny in the package of Pikachu. Yeah. No, for <laughs> sure. It's it's a great gag. Um, but, like, it's very important that they set up this world correctly. And they did a great job at building, like, a city where people live with Pokemon. 
um, and like you know the the art design of the Pokemon is done well. I mean, we have to compare this to like the Sonic trailer, right? And how poorly <laughs> that was done. But here, the characters they they are given a slight element of realism, where you know they have like real fur and scales and stuff like that. Um, but they still retain the cartoonish proportions of the original characters. You don't lose that kind of Pokemon essence of them. So it's the best compromise, I would say, between fusing them into the real world with real actors and them still being Pokemon and it, you know, them working together. And there's a lot of charm to them because they retain that original playfulness. Yeah, I I like this a lot. I thought it was fun. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's made for kids, but... I, yeah. I thought Ryan Reynolds was like that character was funny enough yeah. and played against the sort of like straight man of the main character. Like that yeah. contrast works. Yeah, works and really he, well. he's good at introducing a few of those jokes that the that are for the adults, right? Yeah. Some some hints at those. Yeah. Which I thought was fun. Yeah, how does it function as like a mystery movie? Like is there a thing to be solved? It's like not a mystery movie. It's not okay. yeah. it, it's a kid's mystery movie sure. in that every big development is someone explaining a new plot development to the main characters okay. basically they never like as far as i remember they never really figure anything out they get every big revelation explained to them then they operate as if that's true and then they get a different revelation explained to them and then they operate as if that's true okay. and a lot of this stuff is like kind of telegraphed pretty far out okay. so it's not like oh my god i'm so surprised by like <laughs> the, the who done it nature yeah, Mewtwo it. did it <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I could not but, stop cracking. Oh no, go ahead. Sorry. But there are like good like references to like detective movies. Okay. Like they like go to the docks at the beginning, and yeah. like there's, there's yeah, like, ropes. I, I like yeah. the play on like the the femme fatale like noir dialogue when they first meet the journalist woman. Yeah. Because um, she gives this like overly dramatic spiel about. And she's like a plucky reporter. Yeah, but she gives yeah. this overly dramatic line about that, that's in the noir style, but it's very clearly like overwritten because okay. she's like trying to sound like fancier than she is, and it's it's a really funny like parody of noir tropes, basically. And then she reveals that she's essentially a BuzzFeed writer. Okay. <laughs> no, she she's like a page at uh, what is their CNN. Yeah, well, yeah. like she says, she writes lists of top ten cutest Pokemon. Right. You know? So yeah, yeah. essentially, she's a BuzzFeed writer. Right. Yeah, but she's also like a, a, a PA for the like CNN of the world. Yeah. Yeah. Is in terms of like lore of Pokemon, how did this like line up? I, I don't feel like I know enough. Um. <laughs> I've seen a lot of the first season. Kids like sit down and watch the whole anime. I, yeah, but, but it's it's so like. <laughs> Stupid. Is, to maintain is, the information in your mind is not yeah. worthy. <laughs> I don't know about how it ties into the <laughs> Like, was more. Rhyme City, like, in the original series? I don't think it's ever been referenced before. For this. Okay. It must have been made up for this. Okay. Uh, it does have a slight reference to the previous Pokemon um, because they mentioned that the Mewtwo in this movie was created in Kanto, like, 20 years ago, which is about, or 25 years ago, which is about when the first Pokemon movie came out. And that one's about Mewtwo getting But made. those were straight, like, 2D animated films, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. But you could presume that this Mewtwo is the same Mewtwo that was made in the first Pokemon movie. Oh, uh, okay. So oh. you can imagine that these are in the same world. Gotcha. Huh. It's that just that Rhyme City is made just for this movie. Gotcha. As far as I'm aware. Yeah. That first Pokemon movie had some balls because it was called Pokemon the First Movie. <laughs> it's like, how do you know? Like, how do you know there's going to be another one? Yeah. <laughs> like, let's... That's that's a pretty gutsy move there, yep. Pokemon people. Um, 
But so my concern with, the, or I don't know, not concern, but like thoughts with this movie, because I haven't seen it yet, I've seen the trailers, is that they like take the clean jokes from Deadpool and like put them in this movie and it's just like Ryan Reynolds doing Deadpool as Pikachu. Mm-hmm. And like, is that like with clean jokes, right? Like, is that what it is? Because that was my sense of it. It's that it's like very Deadpool-y. It, I don't know. It's not as like meta or like offbeat. Okay. As Deadpool is, like, there, there's They're like more a, straight, more straight up. Yeah, there's a small moment where they like Pikachu's like really into coffee. Sure. And that's like the most kind of like meta of the jokes that they do, where he's just like really addicted to coffee. Okay. But but that was just like a funny scene more than anything else. Um, I mean, it's funny to see a Pikachu drinking coffee like an adult. Yeah. <laughs> That's no, the joke. I, I think the reason that it works is that like Pikachu's kind of like is a good, like he kind of like adopts the main character like as his sidekick. Okay. And is kind of like teaching him, but also like kind of making fun of him and like undermining him okay, sure. throughout. Because the main character is like very sheltered, he, and he's like an insurance ad- or training to be an insurance adjuster. Yeah, and like never he's very reluctant to get into this whole story. In the first yeah, and, he, and he, he's shown at the start of the film to like have never really connected with Pokemon, like everybody else that like lives in this world. Mm-hmm. So his relationship with Pikachu is to like find that like kind of like soulmate character. That yeah, well, it's not exactly Pikachu's that because he was actually huge into Pokemon as a kid. But then it had strong associations with his mother's death. Yeah. And so he completely, like, yeah. ran away from that aspect of his life. And yeah, but, him but to the point where it. he's, like, uncomfortable with yeah. the relationship with Pokemon. Yeah, but I think yeah. that's a good, it's a good, like, character arc for him. Yeah, that's, that works. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I should watch it, is what you're saying. I, I, watch it. I, I quite enjoyed it. I thought it was very well done. It's, it's the highest rated watch. video game movie of all time. Well, okay. So, <laughs> sure. Also, I could not stop cracking up at the fact that one of the main villains looked exactly like Milo Yiannopoulos. Yeah, a number of people have noted this. <laughs> yeah. Although it's spoiler, because he's well, like... I mean, you he's know, like... You don't know he's a villain. No, okay, well, it's pretty obvious what he is whenever they show him on screen. Yeah, he has the Milo like haircut and the, the way and that the he dresses. And, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it's, that was funny. It's, it's kind of distracting, but <laughs> it's funny. Okay, good. Um, they, they did a good job of like having like all the Pokemon ev- like everywhere, too. Like It's a very yeah. dense movie. <laughs> Like yeah. a lot of Pokemon doing. It's something where in this if world. you're like a super fan, you can rewatch it to see new details. Sure. Yeah. Because like you know, there's different signs that reference different Pokemon and like you know different wild Pokemon like exploring the city and things like that. It's just it's very lively. Cool. Yeah, and lots of like like kind of fun things like in the world. Like they walk through like a, a market and like. It's like a night market where there's all this food being cooked, and there's like a Charmander like heating the yeah. food. Yeah, like, <laughs> yeah, I love this tail. Um, That's very good. I have a, so a again, very very well yeah. fleshed out. Yeah, Flintstones. Is a, I didn't even think of that, but yeah, Flintstones is a good comparison point actually. That like the abilities of the Pokemon affect the how the world is like organized. It's a day job. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's also unclear to me like how the in the Pokemon world, like, how the economy functions. Because, like, people have jobs, but you don't, like, see money transact. Well, then... they, you fight the Pokemon trainer, and when you win, you beat them up and take the money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, like, you can be a Pokemon trainer, and, and uh, it's a uh, vocation. 
Yeah. But un- unclear how one. Well, this this was weird because in this city money. they don't do Pokemon battles. They specifically live harmoniously with the Pokemon. Okay. Uh, and I don't know. Maybe you just don't see money exchange because they're like doing a cinematic shortcut. Just like, you know, I guess. You know, I mean, there's the implication is that money exists because he's an insurance adjuster, yeah, which yeah. is like purely a financial instrument. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, but <laughs> the, like outside of that, there does not seem to be an economy that thought about that for a while <laughs> watching the movie there's no money in this world how does this work well because like i don't know like are they is it a communist society but like not the same. implication of insurance <clears throat> being so it's not yeah so okay i don't know sure um i watched a movie too not, <laughs> not this one um i saw book smart um which i thought was which, very good for a minute it was like 100 percent or on Rod yeah Rod there's always some spoiler coming along but yeah. it's a very easy movie to like, so it's not surprising that it's at that level. So this is... Yeah, it's um, 98. 98. All right, pretty good. Pretty, pretty damn good. Um, this is Olivia Wilde's directorial debut. Um, so we've seen this quite a lot lately. We've seen uh, Greta Gerwig did this with, with Lady Bird. We saw Eighth, uh, eighth Grade, the directorial, directorial review debut um, from Bo Burnham, Bo Burnham uh, about a young girl at a high school, or a middle school in that case. This one... What, no, I was going to say... it. Like having not seen it reminds me of eighth grade. Oh yeah, like from the trailer and all that. Well, it seems to be more like a girl's version of Super Bad. Yeah, it's not quite on that level. It's it's closer to Lady Bird than anything really. Um, But you can draw comparisons to like Pick High School movie. Like it's it's drawing inspiration from that. Premises: We have two best friends that are on their last day of their senior year. They clearly go to some sort of fancy school. Um, they find mm-hmm. out, and they're they're book smart, right? Like so, they've studied yeah. their entire high school career. They haven't partied. They haven't made a lot of friends with popular kids, but they do it so they can go to fancy schools. And they succeed, and they have gone to fancy schools. They find out that all of the kids that they thought were a bunch of you know jerk offs are going to those fancy schools as well. So they decide <laughs> to you know go to the big bash, go to the big party, prove that they can be fun too, and their last night. So it's this the movie takes place bulk of the time over the course of this last night. Um, it was. It's very. It's a comedy first. It's very very funny. Um, the the lead performance is um, Beanie uh, Feldman, something like that, um, who is the best friend in Lady Bird, which is probably why I'm drawing the comparison there. Um, she's very good and almost certainly Feldstein. Feldstein, thank you. Um, we'll almost certainly get more work um, out of out of this movie. What I there's a lot of things I liked about it, but what I found most effective is that there really isn't an antagonist. Like, the message of the movie seems to be, like, if you learn more about people, you will learn that they're basically want the same things that you want and are nice and will be nice to you if you're nice to them. And, like, okay, great. Like, that's yeah. that's a nice message. That's a wholesome message. <laughs> that's a wholesome message. And that's pretty much what the movie is saying. And it's effective in delivering that message. Uh, my only real critique of this movie is that it is very class-blind. Like, it, they uh, purport to be going to a public high school. Everyone is going to, like, Yale and Stanford and stuff like that. Everyone appears to be pretty rich, and there's like no comment on that at all. Like that's just treated as exactly how the world functions, exactly how it works. That anybody can fall ass backwards into one of these fancy schools and they can afford it, and that's normal. And that is not true compared to Lady Bird, where the economics are central to the movie, and like whether or not she can afford to go to NYU is the driving conflict or one of the driving conflicts in the film. Um, and I think it's it, the movie has been critiqued on those grounds. I think it is glaring in the in the the finished product. 
Um, and you do kind of have to watch around it, like as you watch the movie. Even even eighth grade seemed a little sensitive to like the economic, like oh, economics very. Of yeah, it. because you yeah. you have like the the lead character in that is invited to this party at the rich kid's house, and like her, she doesn't have fancy clothes, she doesn't have a good present, she's not used to like being in a place with a pool, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a big part of or a big plot point in the movie. This one, like. It's everybody is basically at the same upper middle class to upper class level. Everybody is going to the great school, which is you know a plot point, and this all is happening at a public school. This feels like a movie that should have happened, should have taken place at a private school, and you know would have made more sense as kind of a critique of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and missing that feels like a, a big old miss to me. Like that that is a, a problem. Um, that said, it features a lesbian character in a lead role, and her lesbianism is relevant to the character, but not defining the character. Um, it it features a diverse cast that whose diversity again is not the defining trait of the character in question, and it is again just really tightly written, very funny, um, and I enjoyed it. So go watch Booksmart. Uh, be aware of its bad class politics, but go watch it anyway, um, and, and it's definitely worthwhile. So thumbs up there. Nice. Yeah. Uh, your pick next, Chris. What are we, what are we watching? Um, I've never seen Thelma and Louise. Oh, that's a fun one. Okay. Another young Brad Pitt movie. So. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. He's a, he's a hunk of meat in that, in that film. <laughs> All right. Uh, it's Fina Davis and um, Susan Sarandon. Yes. I say. Yeah. Um, so great. That, that's fun. Um, thank you for listening, everybody. If you're liking the show, please share it. Please review us on social media. Please comment. Um, like, subscribe, it really does make a difference. Uh, we read every comment that we get, we appreciate every share that we get and every like. Um, so thank you for that. And we will see you next week for Thelma and Louise.